Mayor Todd Gloria talks about the city's new climate priorities. Well, it's what we need to do in order to address the changing climate that's around us. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. The high cost of housing is even more of a challenge for women, especially women of color. By every measure, women in California are worse off than men when it comes to housing. What Congressman Darrell Issa says and won't say about the January 6th investigation and why the love of Choco Tacos may bring them back to life. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love. The city of San Diego now has an updated climate action plan, and city leaders will consider a new proposal to increase housing. Both initiatives have been presented by Mayor Todd Gloria. This legislative emphasis on San Diego's biggest issues has not always been typical of the city's priorities, but it was one of the mayor's campaign promises to move San Diego into the league of major cities across the nation. What remains to be seen is if the city can meet the expectations of these big proposals. And joining me is Mayor Todd Gloria. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Maureen. So this week, the San Diego City Council unanimously approved an ambitious update to the city's climate action plan. It includes plans to uh, electrify the city by banning natural gas in new construction and retrofitting most homes that use gas to electricity. Why is the move away from natural gas such a big part of this update? Well, it's what we need to do in order to address the changing climate that's around us. And I think your listeners and viewers see it every day in terms of the drought, extreme heat, other challenges. Uh, the changes that we envision in this climate action plan are actually less impactful than those that we anticipate will happen because of our changing climate. So in order to get to our new goal of net zero emissions by the year 2035, uh, we have to electrify uh, most of our city. We have to you know, adopt more renewable energy, work collaboratively with our San Diego Community Power, our new community choice aggregator. Um, all of these things together, uh, we believe, can help us meet these emission reduction targets uh, that will help reduce the worst uh, impacts of climate change. And if anything I know about San Diego, third generation native San Diegan, I will tell you that we love our quality of life. We love our environment. Uh, and so these targets within the Climate Action Plan, I think, help us to do that. And I believe that San Diegans will embrace them because the alternative is simply worse. 
The city still has to figure out how to go about retrofitting neighborhoods for electricity, how much it will cost, how long it will take, and how it will affect individual residents. When will we find that out? Very soon. Uh, the council adopted uh, the new climate action plan update on Tuesday, and my team set about uh, working on the implementation of that the next day. This won't be done overnight. The horizon of the climate action plan uh, is out to years 2035 and beyond, but that work starts now and we can do things as we've already been doing, uh, like electrifying our city fleet to placing solar uh, on city buildings, converting city uh, energy accounts to 100% renewable energy. Uh, But we have to go deeper than that. Uh, And that gets to some of what you're talking about in terms of uh, housing production, you know, the intersection between housing production and transportation diversity diversification is climate policy. And so uh, this isn't just about whether you switch your gas stove to an electric one. This is also about the built environment in your community and the kinds of choices you have to get from A to B. So it's comprehensive, it's enormous in scope and in scale. Uh, But Maureen, I want to make the point that I think that this is not only necessary to protect our community, but it's also important for economic development. We are on the leading edge of fighting for our climate. And I would point out that our first climate action plan that I authored when I was the city's interim mayor had the goal of 100% renewable energy by the year 2030. Uh, We now are in a position where sometimes we actually hit that target now. And what was done audaciously back in 2015 when I proposed it uh, has now been replicated across the country. Yesterday, we spoke with Climate Action Campaign's Nicole Capritz about her concerns with the updated Climate Action Plan. And here's what she had to say. I wouldn't say anything gives us concern other than, can we do it? And what I mean by that is, do we have the political will to do that? Because for the past seven years, the city has failed to successfully and meaningfully implement the first climate plan. So, Mayor Gloria, what's your reaction to that? Is the political will there to fully implement this plan? Well, I'm here saying that there is the unanimous vote of the city council, I think, demonstrates that as well. And I've already acknowledged that, you know, the previous administration may have lacked the kind of commitment that this administration is bringing to this issue. Uh, But I would disagree with the notion that nothing has been done for the last couple of years. Marine, when I talked about that 100% renewable energy goal that many people criticized me for back when we suggested it, we now have San Diego community power. This has been stood up from nothing over the last number of years, and it now is providing energy services to almost a million homes in our county. That wasn't the case just a few years ago. It is in place now, and they have products that do allow San Diegans to choose to get 100% of their energy use from renewable sources. So uh, that, coupled with many other things that we can point to, there has been progress. Is it as fast as the changing climate demands of us? No. And that's precisely why this update uh, really does have additional measures, really raises the ante when it comes to this issue. And you hear me saying very clearly and very succinctly, we have no other choice, Marine. To do nothing uh, is to consign uh, our community to a degradation of quality of life that is simply unacceptable. I think that what we've put out in this plan will preserve our world-famous quality of life. And that's why I believe San Diegans will embrace it. And importantly, San Diego leaders already have. So this week, you also unveiled your second housing package in an effort to create more affordable homes for low-income and middle-class San Diegans. A big part of this plan involves getting innovative about where to develop new homes. For instance, can you explain how this plan would develop housing on underused commercial spaces? Well, what we envision is providing more incentives to actually 
encourage property owners and builders to go in and turn those properties into the housing that we so desperately need. Uh, you know, I hear often from San Diegans their concerns uh, about where some of this new housing will go. And there seems to be a heavy consensus that this stuff should be focused in our commercial corridors. I agree, but we have to create the incentives to do that. So whether that is expedited processing, uh, granting of additional density, um, other kinds of streamlining efforts, our hope is that these commercial corridors and these commercial properties that simply are not keeping up with the times can in fact turn over, uh, remain commercial on the ground level. Again, we want people to be able to walk to what they bike to what they need in their communities, but that it has the housing above it that every recent college grad and every senior who wants to uh, stay in their community, uh, every working and middle-class person who can't find a home to rent or to own can actually have a shot at getting. How many homes do you propose would be created under your new housing proposal? Well, that's always difficult to assess, Maureen, because at the end of the day, we still are a society of private property rights. And Property owners can simply say that they don't want to participate, and that is their right under our rules. But we can make create incentives to encourage them to come forward. What I know, Maureen, is that the state of California is asking San Diego to provide over 100,000 new homes over the next couple of years. Um, that is a daunting challenge. It certainly exceeds what we have done in recent decades in terms of housing production. But there have been times in the past where we have met those marks uh, in the 1980s and 1970s. So we are capable of doing it. And I believe that the reforms that are proposed uh, in my housing action package, coupled with the first housing action package that we adopted earlier this year, um, will help us to actually meet those marks. Now, yesterday you met with mayors across San Diego County to talk about homelessness. Is there an effort to create a regional strategy on homelessness? Well, we did meet uh, earlier this week for that purpose, but I have to uh, make sure that folks are aware that mayors in this county meet at least quarterly on this matter. Uh, This is not a downtown San Diego issue. This is not a city of San Diego issue anymore. Every city in this county and in our unincorporated areas are seeing extreme increases in homelessness, actually more than what we've seen in the city of San Diego. And it does require us to all coordinate, uh, consolidate our efforts. And uh, We hosted this at the San Diego Rescue Mission, which is in Bankers Hill in the city of San Diego. And Marina, I have to tell you, I was grateful for the 12 mayors who showed up at this meeting because they could see what a state-of-the-art homeless shelter may look like. One of the challenges I know is that oftentimes proposed shelters receive a lot of pushback from surrounding communities because their impression of what a shelter is is very different from what it actually is. At the rescue mission that has been operating on that site for over 10 years, I would defy most people to know if they walk past it, that's a homeless shelter, you know, catering to over 100 people every single night of the week. I think for those mayors to see that, to touch it, feel it in person, uh, hopefully will strengthen their desire and their willingness to go to their communities and say to them, listen, we had a 60, 70, 100% increase in the amount of homeless in our community last year. We have to start creating local solutions. And I happen to see one in the city of San Diego that we think will integrate well into the neighborhood. Housing ends homelessness, Maureen. We need more cities to actually generate the housing, both the shelter beds and the permanent long-term housing that we know can get people off the streets and keep them off the streets. There's a federal strategic plan in the works on homelessness. How do you see that helping San Diego? Well, interestingly, I actually met this morning uh, with the head of homelessness for the federal government. And I think a lot of what we're doing aligns uh, with what they recommend. My plea to them uh, was to provide additional financial resources to help us do this work. You know, we have local funds we've committed. We have some state funds. We have some limited federal funds. Additional dollars will help us to actually increase the pace of housing production. Their focus is on housing first. 
that aligns with my vision. Uh, low barrier housing, we've tried to remove every excuse there is for folks to leave the streets and get into housing. These are all things the city of San Diego is currently doing. In my 19 months as mayor, we've been able to increase the amount of health shelter capacity in our city by 25%. We are on deck to add 450 additional shelter units in our city before the year is out. Uh, the city is working aggressively on this. I think that's part of why the head of USCICH wanted to meet with me this morning. You know, every night of the week, Maureen, our shelter system is helping over 1,200 San Diegans to get off the streets and graduate into permanent housing. More of those beds will help us to help more people. Uh, my hope is that we can get more resources to do more for the people who are living on our streets. Mayor Todd Gloria, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for yours. Staying on the topic of housing, nearly half of women in California are rent burdened. That means they spend more than 30% of their income on rent. A new report by the Gender Equity Policy Institute finds the greatest impacts on Black and Latina women, single mothers, and elderly women who live alone. Joining me now to talk about this is Nancy Cohen, president of the Gender Equity Policy Institute. Welcome to you. Thank you. Good to be here. Based on what we've long known about gender inequality, the findings of this report aren't totally surprising, but they have revealed a level of detail that's not been well documented. What did you learn from the data? What is striking about the data that we ran, and we ran it in many different ways by many different measures, by every measure, women in California are worse off than men when it comes to housing. Uh, The degree and extremity of how women are struggling, particularly women of color, um, particularly Black women, particularly Latinas, is really striking and disturbing. So what is the story that this report tells about the ability of women in California to not just afford to live here, but build a life? Well, exactly. We know that the more that housing costs, the less that you have to spend on other necessities. California is also a state where childcare uh, per year costs about as much as a year of college. Um, We have inflation and food costs and gas prices going up. So women, as you said, about half of women are spending more than 30% of their income on housing a very high percentage, 25%, are spending more than 50% of their income on housing. For Black women, it's 59% are spending a third of their income on housing. So we know that Californians often move to places farther away from where they work, move away from the coast, move away from cities to try to find more affordable housing. And for women, this is just um, exacerbates the problems that they already face due to gender inequality. They are spending more time on childcare, so they have less time to commute. Fewer jobs are available to women. So moving to a new place really puts tremendous barriers in the way of women continuing to participate in the labor force and earn good incomes to support their families. How much does housing discrimination play into this cost burden? 
Well, there are plenty, there's plenty of evidence that discrimination in the housing market itself plays into it. During the pandemic, complaints about sexual harassment um, in efforts to secure housing um, skyrocketed. Uh, complaints about race and gender discrimination skyrocketed. And then there's a lot of informal discrimination that takes place, of course. Um, landlords tend to discriminate against people with children. Um, some of the public housing rules discriminate against caretakers, in effect. And there's this amazing study that shows that 30% of the wealth gap between women and men um, nationally can be attributed to women being discriminated against when they're selling houses and purchasing houses. Hmm. You know, how much of what's happening here is about income inequality and how much is about a shortage of housing? I would argue that the shortage of housing is what's really driving it. Um, as you probably know, the gender wage gap is stubborn. It moves a couple cents per year up and down. It's been stuck for many decades. So if we're going to deal with women's housing insecurity in California, we just need more affordable housing. We need to build more housing. We need to institute better protections for renters, particularly at the lowest level of income. And so the solution to this is not going to be through um, dealing with the gender wage gap. The solution to this is going to be good housing policy that takes into consideration the differences that men and women and people of color and white people experience in California's um, really dire housing crisis. This report was produced at the request of the California State Assembly Committee on Housing and Community Development. How do you expect the findings of this report to influence policy? Well, there are a number of bills um, in front of the legislature that will be making their way through um, this month. Uh, we, um, in looking at housing policy, we believe that policies that promote infill development, that is in you know urban centers, already dense centers, but commercial districts, industrial zones, um, would help um, women particularly in that it would reduce commute times. Women also tend to be more dependent on public transportation. Um, the state can look at devoting a big part, of, or at least part of the budget surplus to addressing this crisis that Californians identify as one of the top issues for us. You know, there are other specific things about um, once you do put money toward more development, how you might design housing so that you support all people. Um, you need housing that can support multi-generational families. You need housing that can ensure that the elderly and the disabled have are able to participate in social life um, by how you deal with access. You need to build housing that is connected to transportation routes. 
So there are many possible solutions. It is, in our view, making it a priority and also making sure that whenever the state of California is considering housing policies, that they try to integrate a gender and racial equity approach to those policies and make sure they're analyzing them to see if the policies themselves will help reduce these inequalities. So what does that gender and racial equity approach to housing policy look like? We do know that women would particularly benefit from infill housing. We do know that targeting assistance to single parents, to the elderly, um, to people at the acutely and extremely and lowest income levels would reach the women, the women of color, and the men of color who are most harmed by California's current affordable housing crisis. I've been speaking with Nancy Cohen, president of the Gender Equity Policy Institute. Nancy, thank you. Thank you. Hello, podcast listener. Full disclosure, I'm going to make some assumptions about you. This probably isn't the only podcast you enjoy. Blink if I'm right. (laughs) It's probably not the only thing you watch or listen to on KPBS either. If I'm right about that, then I'm guessing you make it a point to check in on a regular basis to see what's new, take in the latest and greatest, and then you go back to your daily life until we happily come together again. We're sort of like a virtual buffet. When you're hungry for information and entertainment, you go to KPBS and want to eat, uh, consume all you can, right? Well, you should know that when you become a member of KPBS, you're keeping the entire TV, radio, and online trays full of fresh ideas, like the tasty podcast you're enjoying right now. Help feed your appetite for KPBS. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. Thank you. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. From North County to South County, you may have noticed herds of goats in open spaces. Unfortunately, it's not a new petting zoo. But as KPBS reporter Tanya Thorne tells us, these goats are actually working to help keep people safe from fires. Johnny Gonzalez has been in the goat business for over 20 years. His business is called the Environmental Land Management Company, but... On the card, it says goats for hire because people didn't know what environmental land management did. So I had to get it out there that, yeah, we, we, uh, we rent out or you guys can utilize our goats for fire breaks. Lately, his goats have been grazing near busy roads, businesses, and underneath power lines. And it's all part of a new pilot program from SDG&E. One of the cool things that I've heard people refer to them as is four-legged lawnmowers. Denise Menard is with SDG&E. Those four-legged lawnmowers can get up into areas that traditional lawnmowers just can't get into. Last month, the energy company kicked off a goat grazing pilot program in Oceanside. Uh, One of the last things that we want at SDG&E is for our infrastructure to ever cause a fire. So the cool thing is we're letting the goats kind of go out and do their thing and doing what comes natural to them, and that's to eat the weeds. The rented goats are taken to high-risk fire areas 
to clear out dry brush and keep it from growing back for longer periods of time. That not only do they eat the weeds, but they also eat the seeds. So that's one of the benefits that people don't think about. So a lot of times we have people kind of hanging out and watching the goats do their thing and they're eating the weeds, but they don't realize that they're also eating the seeds. So by eating the seeds, the weeds just aren't popping back up as quickly as they would if the seeds hadn't gotten eaten by the goats. Gonzalez says goat grazing for fire abatement isn't new and keeps him busy year round. The goat tool, if you will, is just a reintroduction to what abatement used to be like and reintroducing the goat to get that understory and flash fuel treatment to that better degree. But he explains that the work takes some time because weeds aren't the goat's favorite. They start eating first the invasive plants that they're used to, the Mediterranean, Eurasian, African plants. And then after time, if we need an amount of native plant reduction, we hold them a period of time that they start to actually address it. Because in our native plants, they eat last, believe it or not. And most of our fire problems are these weeds and grasses. Although it takes a little more time, Gonzalez says goats are an organic alternative that aren't just reducing wildfire danger, but carbon emissions too. It's a lot better than just cutting. You don't have the shaft and the duff laying around, they've literally converted it. You don't even notice it. And for the carbon aspect of it, it's all still on site. It hasn't been transported out. The nutrients are still in the soil. So the native plants, if they are to occur, have what they need. And there is no seeds. The goats remove like 99% of the seeds. Gonzalez says once the goats are done, the land is in better shape to suppress a fire. We want the trees and the landscape to be the fire break. This is allowing the land to be the suppression. And if it reaches this area, it'll be quenched out. If it falls into this area, it does not have a starting ignition point. Safety concerns are sometimes raised by residents who spot them in suburban areas. But Gonzalez assures the goats don't mind this element. These goats have been born and raised in this, this type of environment in these suburbs, so they're used to helicopters and sirens and police cars coming in, people screaming and other dogs barking. If we were to take the country goat here, they wouldn't be comfortable at all. SDG &E has used Gonzalez's goats in Oceanside and Chula Vista to clear brush near power lines. The next site will be in Escondido. Upon completion, SDG &E will determine whether the pilot program is adopted and continues. Tanya Thorne, KPBS News. San Diego Congressman Darrell Issa joined other members of the county's congressional delegation at a public forum this week. The discussion at the San Diego Regional Chamber of Commerce included the country's economy and border issues, as well as the partisan divide in Congress. But a major reason for that partisan divide is the fact that Congressman Issa and many of his Republican colleagues did not vote to certify Joe Biden's election on January 6th. And because of that, he's one of seven California congressmen and L.A. Times editorial claims betrayed California voters. And ISA has denounced the findings of the January 6th committee as a partisan farce. As Congressman ISA stands for re-election in the East County, how will his stance on election fraud resonate with voters? Joining me is San Diego Union-Tribune columnist Michael Smolens. And Michael, welcome to the program. 
Hello, thanks for having me on. We reached out to Daryl Ice's office and have gotten no response. Michael, you wrote a column outlining what you call Ice's wayward take on the January 6th hearings. What do you say he got wrong? Well, uh, I said he got just about everything wrong. I mean, he called it a partisan democratic farce. I just pointed out that, that yes, it is a democratic setup select committee, but that really the most damning testimony has come from former Trump administration officials, including a cabinet member, who are all Republicans. And I pointed out, the Republicans don't like to acknowledge this, but there's two Republicans on the committee, Liz Cheney uh, of Wyoming and Adam Kinsleyger of Illinois. Now, you know, the Republicans disown them, but they are Republicans. And frankly, I think uh, the argument could be made that Liz Cheney is as Republican as anybody, except for her devotion or lack thereof of Trump, which may or may not be really a core Republican issue when you get down to it. Did Daryl Issa criticize the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol while he and other members of Congress were in danger? He criticized the violence, uh, and he, he's been consistent on that, uh, even though, as I pointed out, that, that while he didn't support the, the means, the violent means of the, the insurrectionists, if you will, uh, he certainly supported the goal because he did vote to, to overturn the election or deny certification. Is there any indication that the revelations of the investigation have changed ICE's mind about the election being stolen? No, I don't think so. And I think, you know, putting Daryl ICE in context, I mean, he has not been a hardline stop the steal person. Uh, you know, frankly, I think he would rather uh, his votes on that day uh, just not be brought up anymore because. Uh, you know, he's sort of in a little bit of an awkward position, I think. Uh, yes, he supported Trump, but he's not a real hardliner. He does things, I think, that keeps him in good stead with Trump and the Trump people. But he does just not really address the, the election and, the, you know, the, the insurrection much and the notion that um, he voted to overturn it. You also write about ISIS votes against legislation that would monitor neo-Nazi and white supremacist activity within the U.S. military and law enforcement. Why did you mention that vote in particular? Well, I, I just thought that, that, you know, the January 6th uh, uh, riot uh, involved a lot of extremists. Uh, I think there's a lot of extremists involved in the whole effort to, to uh, you know, still now even overturn the 2020 presidential election or reverse it somehow. And, you know, while condemning the violence of these uh, extremists outside the Capitol, inside the Capitol, I just thought that it was kind of an interesting segue to look at, you know, his, his votes on these two issues, because these come in the wake of certainly the, the mass shootings that were, uh, you know, perpetrated by extremists and people with extreme views all around the country. And increasing concern about uh, people in the military uh, being have extreme views as you say, neo-Nazi and white supremacist views. As we know, there were several, many perhaps, uh, veterans and existing military personnel involved in the January 6th riot. So I just think that that had relevance in this whole discussion. In naming Daryl Issa as one of the congressmen who betrayed California voters, the LA Times editorial claims that his refusal to certify the election of Joe Biden should disqualify him from having a role in American government. Does it look like his support of Trump's election fraud claims will hurt his reelection campaign? 
No, not at this stage. I mean, he, you know, we just went through this redistricting process and he's in a very safe Republican district. I would assume he wouldn't be going, uh, you know, on social media saying what he's saying if he didn't have a pretty good sense that, you know, frankly, a, a lot of constituents in his new district agree with him. So the handicappers aren't saying that he's in any real re-election uh, trouble. Why did you decide to write your column about Daryl Issa's take on the January 6th investigation? Congressman Issa says and tweets many things I don't agree with. So do members of the other members of the congressional delegation, all Democrats. But I just thought that in this case, the January 6th situation and the committee are so important that, you know, he's trying to undermine the committee's credibility. Other Republican members are doing the same thing. I, and I assume that there's sort of a, you know, the memo's out to do that. I think also that's done because the committee's uh, work is having some impact at least in terms of getting people's attention. So I thought in this case that, that you know, I mean, it was a matter of Daryl Issa's opinion, so I can't say it was a lie, but I just thought it was worth calling out because of the importance of it. Uh, you know, it wasn't any, I don't want to say run-of-the-mill issue, but, you know, I believe, as some don't, that this was a key moment in American history and a, a very threatening one. I've been speaking with San Diego Union-Tribune columnist Michael Smolens. Michael, thank you. Thank you very much. Here in the United States, the rigors that medical students face are largely academic. Intense course loads and long hours within the field are notorious, but the burden itself takes a largely mental toll. In neighboring Mexico, however, it's a much different story. A recent report from the Los Angeles Times documents the threat of violence that Mexican medical students face while practicing medicine in rural areas of the country. The root cause? Increased presence and volatility of drug cartel activity across the whole of Mexico. Joining me now with more is LA Times foreign correspondent Leela Miller. Leela, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Let's first talk about why medical students in Mexico face these dangers. Yeah, so as you said, um, there are communities in Mexico, particularly in rural areas that are basically under the control of of armed groups. Um, sometimes the armed groups will will come and go. They might arrive to a community and start um, extorting residents. And these are the places that they, they might be impoverished places and they're the parts of the country that need doctors the most. And that's partly why medical students are are sent there. Is there any understanding from the universities that medical students are being sent to highly dangerous situations in the first place? So universities acknowledge that students can be in these in these dangerous situations. Students have talked to me about having needing to cross cartel checkpoints to get to work, sometimes being forced to treat patients who are armed, who are, you know, narco traffickers. What universities say is that they would never intend to to send a student to to a dangerous place but you know students say that nevertheless this is happening and universities aren't doing enough to make sure that students are safe so what's been the response to the country's mandatory community service program as a result of the violence students and even doctor associations across the country are saying that 
the program shouldn't exist if it can't be safe, if students are continued to be sent to these, you know, isolated areas where there are armed groups present. So for years, you know, students, students have been saying this and they're pretty, they're pretty frustrated because they say that universities and health officials aren't taking enough preventative measures. Are, are there any planned changes to this program in light of these dangers? Mexico's health secretary said uh, a couple weeks ago that he he had no plans to end the community service program. Um, that you know officials can't just discount these these faraway areas. Um, what universities have done and what they what they are doing is um, if sometimes you know if there is a dangerous incident that gets a lot of attention or sometimes if if students um, students protest after something happens they'll take students out of an area and put them place them somewhere else so university officials say that they are being proactive um, that they are responding to complaints students are saying that this isn't happening nearly you know nearly enough or as it should You write about the shooting death of a medical student inside of a hospital in Durango State. What can you tell us about this incident and the backlash it sparked? This student, his name was Eric, Eric Andrade, and he was just days away from finishing his community service when um, some men who were intoxicated or under the influence and armed walked into his hospital. And we're not exactly sure. Um, the, the details are a bit unclear, but one of them, at least one of them took out a weapon and, and started shooting and Eric was, was killed after, after Eric was killed. Um, his, his classmates, medical students um, in, in Durango, started almost immediately started protesting they started saying um that the community service program shouldn't exist some of them refused to go to to return to their placements um and what ended up happening is that the um university where that that eric had attended said that it would be redistributing 180 students that you know, either we're doing their are doing their community service now, or that we're going to begin. Reasons do uh, the cartel, for example, have uh, for threatening violence and carrying out violence against medical students? Medical students have told me that um, what what they're most afraid of, and what they sometimes encounter, is cartel members coming to their clinics and seeking them out after there's been. Um, after there's been a shooting. So after, you know, two different cartels got into a fight, after cartels got into a fight with um, with government officials, um, with security forces. So they're basically terrified of, of being sought out in those situations and being forced to practice medicine at gunpoint, being forced to um, treat an injured cartel member um, or being kidnapped, you know, from their clinic by a cartel and and brought, you know, taken to a place to treat one of their wounded. 
are Mexican medical students beginning to reconsider their profession, given how dangerous it's becoming? Some students, it, it's clear that that when a student is is killed, um, it, it has you know a really strong impact on other medical students. Um, so it's clear that you know students are are really scared of this year of, of community service, of the potential of being sent to um, one of these unsafe areas. It's hard to know how many students are, you know, reconsidering the profession altogether. Um, but after Eric was, was killed, his sister, who is also a medical student, told me that, you know, she now has a hatred towards medicine. And she was about to start her own year of community service, and she was still deciding whether to do it. I've been speaking with LA Times foreign correspondent, Leela Miller. Leela, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. If the recent news about the demise of the Choco Taco has gotten you down... You're not alone. Klondike's discontinuation of the beloved frozen treat has generated both outrage and tributes across social media platforms, as well as a rush to stockpile the snack while they're still available. But before you head to your local corner store to grab one while you can, just know that you'll probably be hearing a lot of this. Sorry, man, we don't got those here. No, I'm sorry, we don't have any Shaco tacos. We haven't had them in a minute. Sorry, we don't have any. Sorry, man, we don't have any more Choco Tacos. So what's a Choco Taco connoisseur to do? Well, besides gourmet reproductions and homages being made by restaurants across the nation, Klondike announced yesterday that they may revisit production of the treat in the near future following the strong community backlash. And here now to discuss the surprisingly profound cultural impact of this particular treat is Los Angeles Times columnist and author Gustavo Arellano. Gustavo, welcome back to Midday Edition. Gracias for having me. You wrote a column about the Chaco Taco. What is it that's made it such a beloved treat for so long? It starts with the name, Chaco Taco. Saying that, you're already smiling in a a fun way, you know? And then you get to the treat itself. If you're eating Choco Tacos, it's probably going to be in summer where you're looking for anything that's cold. And if you have more flavors to it, then more power to you. And you're looking for a communal experience. You don't eat, no one eats Choco Tacos by themselves. You're usually going to the ice cream man. You're going to a convenience store. You're going maybe getting a whole box and then sharing them with them. So it's just uh, a feeling of conviviality and community all rolled into a snack, which by the way, I'm not the biggest fan of eating, but I'm a bigger fan of what it represents. All right, because, you know, you write a lot about authenticity in your article and how loaded that word can be. Uh, Would you say that the Chaco Taco is in any way authentically Mexican? You have vanilla, which comes from Mexico, chocolate, which comes from Mexico. The taco shell, at least the concept of the taco shell, comes from Mexico. Peanuts originally come, of course, from South America, but it's it's all sort sort of Latino. And for me, though, What's 
most authentic about Mexican food is that it's a mishmash of all the different cultures that have gone through Mexico, not just indigenous cultures, but Spanish, European, Afro influences, you know, Afro indigenous influences, so many. And so the Chaco Taco is just an evolution of that in the United States, or it's a continuation more than anything. This news coincides with the recent passing of revered cookbook author Diana Kennedy, who during her lifetime was considered one of the foremost experts on Mexican cuisine. Can you talk a little uh, about her career and this contrast you draw between the culinary world she represented and the larger conversation about authenticity in food? Kennedy made her name with a series of cookbooks that really really pushed Mexican regional recipes into the American consciousness at a time where they didn't really know about regional traditions like from Veracruz or Yucatan or Oaxaca. And hey, she was a, a great uh, chronicler of this. She would get in her truck well into her 80s, driving thousands of miles a year across Mexico, just finding all these different recipes. I give her respect for that. But she, Diana couldn't just... Uh, let that be. She also at the same time had to ridicule Mexican-American food traditions. I'm sure she thought the California burrito was an abomination or rolled tacos or, you know, many of the other treats at San Diego's Mexican-American commuting for decades. And that's where I have a huge issue with, with her, myself and other people as well. But the food media, which lionized her for the good work that she did, but never really criticized her for the bad stuff that she would say. There's no no cut and dry or, or easy way to answer that. But, you know, let's talk about that. Who does get to decide what's authentic and what's not? I do not believe there's such a thing as authenticity, but the idea of authenticity has driven so much of the love for Mexican food. And not just from non-Mexicans, by the way, but Mexicans themselves, this idea like, oh, this is authentic. We got to go do that. I, I, I have to cite my colleague, Jose Rala, uh, the taco editor for Texas Monthly, who says, you know, what's authentic to most people is what their grandma made. Like that is authentic. And we all have so many different grandmas. You could have, you know, you could have a tortilla made by 10 different grandmas and it's going to come out 10 completely different tortillas. So I only have an issue with authenticity when other people start trying to define it for other folks and start maligning what their idea of authenticity is. And you write that the Chaco Taco is a pretty apt metaphor for the evolution of Mexican-American food. What do you mean by that? Because, again, you have non-Mexicans non in the United States creating something based on Mexican products, making uh, some weird old thing for the summer and something beloved by both Mexicans and non-Mexicans alike in the United States. And the fact that it's so inauthentic, conversely, I'm not trying to be postmodernist here. I really mean it. The fact that it's so inauthentic, that's what makes it so incredibly Mexican. And before we go, I have to ask, have you had any luck finding any Chaco Tacos out there on the street? When I did my column, the first thing I did was run to every convenience store I could find. They were already sold out, except I finally found one. So there's five Choco Tacos in my freezer. I'm going to give them out to friends because, again, I'm not the biggest fan. I'm more of a Neapolitan ice cream uh, sandwich type of guy. <laughs> All right. I've been speaking with LA Times columnist and author Gustavo Ariano. Gustavo, thank you very much for talking with us today. Gracias.